today I'm going first. <laughs> Good morning and welcome to the second theme talk for this week. Our speaker this morning, Maria Curtis, we all know as a, a, a demure, elegant and self-effacing individual. <laughs> <laughs> Though she does confess to one area of inordinate pride. Happened here at summer school some time ago where she managed to make a dog out of sellotape. (laughs) (laughs) Although the task, to be fair, was to make a beaker. Given that the task this week is to speak about the authentic self, goodness knows what we're about to hear. (laughs) And then I'd like to set her up with a snippet, as I did Jane yesterday. This is true, apparently. There's a man who spent £30,000 on plastic surgery to make himself look like a human Ken doll. (laughs) He's announced he's going to release his own doll onto the market. Celso Santabenaz. A 20-year-old Brazilian has had operations on his nose, his chin and his jaw, as well as silicon implants in his chest to make him look like Barbie's boyfriend. (laughs) Now he's a celebrity in his own right. He is the inspiration for the new Celso doll, (laughs) which will be available in Brazil from September. Put your orders in. Sounds nice. (laughs) (laughs) Celso declared... This is also magical. I dreamt of being a human puppet. <laughs> what does it mean to be human, Maria? Well, let's find out. Let's um, start our session today with a gathering chant. Now, I think it was only Sunday, but it feels like weeks ago in um, Michael's service. We did gathered here, uh, which is 227 in the purple book. We did it in two parts there, but I think we can afford to be a bit more ambitious now, although this side might not have as many people as that side. But basically, I I think we can sort of cut you down in the middle here, yeah? So it'll be one, two, three, and four. And um, it's marked on where you come in. Okay, so Sheila will give us a note, and we'll just um, we'll do it once through all together, or should we do it twice through? Twice through all together to to remind ourselves of the tune, and then we'll start with this group, and then this one, blah blah blah. And you're going to help me, aren't you, Michael? Okay, so. Let's have a note. Gathered here in the mystery of the hour. Thank you. 
That was brilliant. Now let our chalice be lit. Today, may our chalice flame represent our humanity, our humanness, our human nature, our authentic selves. Let us celebrate what makes us human. Let us gratefully appreciate the privileges of being human. And may we accept too the responsibilities to our own species, to other living things, and to our beautiful, long-suffering planet Earth. May we use our amazing faculties and sensitivities to bring compassion, peace and harmony to the world. May it be so. So I want to think today about what it is that makes us human. And I've chosen to look at this topic through the lens of artificial intelligence, which I'm going to call AI. Attempts to create machines that are like human beings. What can we learn about ourselves from their successes and failures? For some, it's only a matter of time before we create a machine that behaves, thinks, speaks and even feels like a human being. But what I want to think about today is whether, in theory, a machine could have feelings programmed into it. I watched... um, a film, it's not about um, a robot, but it's a film called Under the Skin with uh, Scarlett Johansson as, um, as an alien. And I'm not sure what the background was, but she's, they've descended onto Earth to get some spare parts. So she sort of entraps men and then they melt in a rather horrible way. Um, so... It's amazing. It's an amazing film. If if you want to see more, I've it's on. Um, I bought a um, Blu-ray instead of a DVD, so it's in the silent auction. It is quite a good film, but um, <laughs> she starts off being distinctly odd, and it's it's set in Glasgow, so the, there's this impenetrable accent. Anyway, sorry, any Glaswegians here. So it actually, you, you see it through her eyes, you know, this complete alienation with hen nights and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, um, and she speaks to her victims in these sort of rather formulaic sentences. Um, there's a shocking scene quite near the beginning where she shows no emotional response to a crying toddler whose parents have just drowned. And then there are some subtle changes in her behaviour once she begins to respond to innocence and kindness. Next thing, she's kissing and having sex with a stranger. And you think, whoa, how could that transformation have occurred? What kind of a model of emotions is that? I think it's a very naive view that we can learn about emotions just like that from a couple of isolated experiences. And that's what I I want to talk about today, really. These examples are from science fiction, but what worries me is that some some, not all, some of our top scientists and philosophers have equally naive views. They see the human brain as a complex machine, which could, in theory, be replicated. Some think we will eventually be able to build computers that will be superior to us in intelligence. They'll take over the world, 
and we'll be lucky if they're prepared to keep us on as pets. There are people that really believe this. This is why I'm saying it, because it worries me. Some imagine computing as a kind of oncoming rapture. Um, There's one person who wrote a book called The Singularity is Near, only in 2005, envisaging what he thought was a utopian future. For me, it's pretty dystopian, where we shed our bodies and upload our minds into computers and live forever, virtual, disembodied, immortal. To me, the fact that they think like this sends out alarm bells. It shows that they have no idea of what an amazing, wonderful, but complex creature the human being is. They have no appreciation of the subtlety of human interaction, no regard for human creativity, no understanding of the nature of our identity, of what makes us our authentic selves. So I want to think about what it is that makes us human. We're often compared to animals, of course, always coming out as superior. Animal is a term of abuse used for murderers, rapists and torturers, which is very unfair to animals. Animals aren't motivated to kill by a distorted ideology. We're told in Genesis that God gave us dominion over other forms of life, including animals. Well, we've made a right mess of being at the pinnacle of creation, riding roughshod over the natural environment as if by right. We need a more humble view of ourselves. Yet, I think the Genesis creation myth illustrates a profound truth about the human condition that once we've eaten of the tree of knowledge, then we have choice, we have free will. Once we can think and talk about things, we've lost our animal innocence and entered the moral domain. We can make good or bad choices. We can choose to do right or wrong. And sometimes we face very real dilemmas where we don't know what is right or situations are so complex there aren't obvious goodies and baddies to side with. So we are moral agents, able to make choices, but I would contend that this is not a purely rational or conscious process. Unconscious processing and feelings like empathy and compassion come into our moral decision-making. And it's important to consider how these come about. What are the conditions that enable us to feel empathy and what prevents it from developing? How do we come brutalised? <coughs> That's beyond my scope for this morning, but we could return to this issue this afternoon. For the moment, I want to focus, uh, to take a narrow focus on language. As many of the examples of artificial intelligence that we'll be looking at a bit later are ones that simulate human communication. Language, in the sense of a symbolic system, is a good contender for what distinguishes us from other creatures. And language, consciousness and free will are linked in quite complex ways. I'm going to put my cards on the table and say that I don't think it will ever be possible to program thoughts or feelings, consciousness, into a machine. These things emerge from experience of being a body in the physical and social world, with a history of millions of years of evolution in our genes. I'm going to argue that what being human is about is creativity, unpredictability, quirkiness, fun, joy, as well as our ability to empathise and feel compassion. This is not to say that a good simulation of human behaviour cannot be convincing. And in some cases, a friendly robot may be preferable to a nasty human being. (laughs) 
they have their roles. Um, but this says more about human beings than it does about the robot. We need to bring in the notion of projection here. Human beings are meaning makers. You show someone a film of a couple of dots moving randomly on a screen and ask them what they see and you'll get a narrative. Oh, that one's chasing that one, they've had a row, that one's storming off, now they're making up. And if you add a different shape, just like a V shape, you've got a novel. (laughs) We just can't help doing this. We do it when we meet someone on the internet and it can be dangerous. Apart from the fact that people tell lies, about their age particularly, (laughs) we have much less information about them than we would if it were a live conversation in the real world. Body language, facial expression, tone of voice, hormones like pheromones and scent, all that information coming in through our senses, much of it not consciously processed, but processed nevertheless, often by nerves in the gut. However, when we don't have this sensory information, we make it up. When we have a conversation with someone online, there's an awful lot of projection going on. They become our ideal. Trustworthy, kind, generous... So with minimal information, we find it very easy to project. But it worries me that some of our scientists who ought to know better make the elementary error of assuming that because a machine may be built that can produce something that looks like language, it is really performing an act of communication. They are projecting intentionality where there is none. And I think this comes from an adherence to a materialistic view, a mater- sorry, a materialist view of human nature, a sort of denial of the self. This summer school is all about the authentic self. And I'm certainly happy talking about the self or the mind or the soul. These are all the same sorts of entities, immaterial entities. So I may use the words interchangeably. I'm not too worried about that. The point is that materialists deny the experience of immaterial entities like the self and the mind and the soul. Hence the title of philosopher Mary Midgley's latest book, Are You an Illusion?, in which she challenges the materialist point of view. So let's just have a look at some models of human nature and particularly looking at how body and soul are linked. Here's one I did earlier. (laughs) (laughs) So I think we're all familiar with dualism um, associated with Plato to begin with and then particularly Augustine and Descartes. The idea that our, our true selves are in this sort of immaterial, fluffy soul, which is in a peculiar way connected to the body, but nobody knows quite how it works. And, of course, the body is a very base thing. Um, we don't really like to talk about that very much, you know. Um, the soul is immortal and superior to the body. And, of course, you get the whole idea of original sin where the... It's passed on through the sexual act and we're all inherited Adam's sin in our bodies, you know. I mean, particularly women's bodies. They're, they're the worst, you know. <laughs> and then um, materialism is quite closely related to this, in a way. Um, with, with dualism, um, it's quite theistic. Um, materialism tends to be atheistic. But um, whereas here you might have faith in a god, here you've got faith in science. The mind equals the brain. The idea of the self is an illusion. We're just physical processes. There is no immaterial soul. 
Okay. Um, so I think on this model, science can tell us everything about, about ourselves. Um, the one that I like, <laughs> the sensible one, <laughs> the realistic common sense view, which actually is quite Aristotelian. It's got, it's got quite a, a good heritage. You know, Aquinas is a bit that way inclined, and Mary Midgley, this philosopher I was mentioning, on this model, we are animals, and we're proud of it. We are rational animals. The body and soul are integrated. Um, there's none of this valuing one more than the other. There's, you're just one. But the body... Uh, this is a quote from John O'Donoghue, which I really like, because in this one, the soul is sort of in the body somehow, but you don't quite know how, whereas he turns it on its head and says that the body is in the soul, which I think is a lovely idea. Um, Yeah. So, materialism is the modern version of dualism, yeah, without a soul. And this is like the body is a machine. Okay. Right. Brilliant. Let's have a little break for an exercise. Um, You've got post-its. I hope everyone's got a post-it. If you haven't, you need a post-it and a pen. Um, We've got about five minutes. I want you to think about... When you feel you're most human, okay? It could be when you're making music, when you're having sex, when you're cooking, playing with children, reading a book, communing with nature, alone with others. Um, I've put one up there, which is really from Maya Angelou, because I've just read her wonderful autobiography, and she talks a lot about laughing laughing with other women so I've, I've, I've put that as mine we're not going to stick them up now but um, if you feel you can share this with a neighbour do but um, I'd like you to have a think about it and maybe chat in, in pairs if you want to um, you don't need to if it's I mean, it's pretty personal, isn't it? When, when do you feel you're most human? And then I'll, I'll put them up on the way out, and then I'll try and I'll have a look at them before this afternoon just to see if there are any patterns, try and collate them in some way. So when do you feel you're most human? Um, you've got time to chat with your neighbour and then just write a sentence. Can I, can I ask yeah. a question? Yeah. As opposed to what? <laughs> <laughs> Drudge or machine, or when, when do you feel you're most human? I can't say any more than that. That's just, yeah. Okay, folks. Right, excellent. I hope you've all managed to write something, and as you go out, you can stick them on the um, bits of paper. (coughs) The irony of uh, celebrating our embodied nature while talking at you for an hour hasn't escaped me, (laughs) and I apologise. But we're on the home straight. My inspiration for this talk came from a book written by a young American computer scientist philosopher and poet called Brian Christian and it was the title that intrigued me I just found it quite by chance on the internet it's called The Most Human Human and the subtitle is A Defence of Humanity in the Age of the Computer and I thought yes this is the book for me (laughs) and it focuses on a key event that happens in the AI community every year a competition called the Turing Test, named after the British mathematician 
and founder of computer science, Alan Turing. So in 1950, Turing posed the question, could a machine ever think? Would it be possible to construct a computer so sophisticated that it could be said to be thinking, to be intelligent, to have a mind? And how would we know? So Turing proposed an experiment. And this is a, a diagrammatic form of the experiment. So you've got a panel of judges, but I've just put one judge here for now. A judge poses questions to a pair of unseen correspondents, okay? So they're just sitting at a terminal. One of them is a human, the other is a computer program, and the judge has got to guess which is which, basically. So that's a real test for the, uh, the software. Turing predicted that by the year 2000, don't forget he was talking in, two, in 1950, so 2000 seemed like a long way away to him. <laughs> He predicted that computers would be able to fool 30% of human judges after five minutes of conversation. So in the 2008 competition, the winning programme convinced 29% of judges. Mm. And this book um, focuses on a competition that took place in Brighton in 2009, which is where I was living and it's a really funny book he talks about his own culture shock and being in Britain you know like no showers and uh, <laughs> and he sees signs that he doesn't understand like let agreed so what, what's that you know and he actually goes those people from Brighton will know this place there's a, a little tea shop called the Mock Turtle and he it's all sort of well, some of the crockery is actually broken, but it's all unmatching, you know. It's sort of a very random, kind of wacky, idiosyncratic place. And uh, he, he just goes along and talks about this, and he doesn't understand what the cakes are, you know. They do have sort of huge... <laughs> um, but it's, it's, that's culture shock, just between someone from America and someone from Britain, you know. And it, it, he links it in with his theme. So in this competition, um, Brian Christian was the human competing against the machine. And he won the most human-human award. (laughs) (laughs) And the book is a very warm, witty and erudite account of how he did it. So through evaluating a range of programmes... He asks, what is it that makes us human? And how do we go about being the most human we can be? Not just under the constraints of the test, but in life. And there are some very sophisticated programmes about. He tells the cautionary tale of Robert Epstein, who is a psychologist, we're not very bright, and editor of an AI journal, who subscribed to an online dating service and ended up having a four-month correspondence with a Russian woman in which they declared their undying love for each other before he began to suspect that something was amiss. You guessed it. Ivana was a (laughs) programme. Beyond its use as a technological benchmark... Beyond even the philosophical, biological and ethical questions it poses, the Turing test is about the act of communication. It makes us focus on how we connect meaningfully with each other within the limits of language and time. How empathy works. What is the process by which someone comes into our life and comes to mean something to us? What is the nature of intimacy? These are some of the most central questions of being human. And it's very interesting to consider the programmes that are sometimes called chatbots or just bots, which are the most successful. 
an early programme in the 1960s, I think some of you would be familiar with this, called ELISA, yeah? Um, Simulated Person-Centred Rogerian Counselling. And for those of you unfamiliar, this is a non-directive, non-judgmental kind of therapy in which reflection plays a key role. For example, a client might say, oh, I'm not feeling good today. And then the therapist might reply, "Mm, so you're not feeling good. (laughs) 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 Would would you like to say a bit more about that? (laughs) Or maybe later on, oh, do go on. (laughs) So this, this technique of fitting the user statements into a set of predefined patterns and responding with a prescribed phrasing of its own called template matching was Eliza's only capacity, but the results were staggering. Many of the people who talked to Eliza were convinced that they were having a genuine human interaction. Some medics actually wanted to use it as a therapeutic tool in hard-pressed psychiatric services suffering from staff shortages. Joseph Feisenbaum, Eliza's creator, was horrified and pulled the plug on the project, becoming an outspoken critic of AI research. But the genie was out of the lamp, and subsequent programmes all used the basic template-matching approach introduced with Eliza. What had shocked Weizenbaum was the idea that psychiatrists were comfortable regarding technique or method as the crucial component in the therapeutic process. (laughs) I quote, What must a psychiatrist think he is doing while treating a patient that he can view the simplest mechanical parody of a single interviewing technique as having captured anything of the essence of a human encounter. I share his concern that we may be prepared to settle for a simulation rather than the real thing in our lives. As we've seen, philosophers throughout history have considered the question of what it is that differentiates us from animals. And the ability to think logically is one characteristic that's been a popular candidate from the time of Aristotle. Reason was certainly elevated above feeling. And our education system remains focused on left-brain activities to do with conscious reasoning with language. But Brian Christian thinks it's about time we stopped what he calls this fetishisation of analytical thinking. I love that. (laughs) And the, the denigration of the creatural, of our animal nature that goes with it. And he thinks we should adopt a healthier view of human intelligence. Uh, there was a, a, there's a TED lecture by um, Ken Robinson, educationalist, which has had more hits than any other TED lecture, apparently. And it's all about dance being as important as mathematics in schools. And I think, here, here. 20th century developments in computer technology should help us rethink and reevaluate our skills profile. Computers are now so much better than we are at cold calculation. The 19th century English mathematician George Boole worked out a system for describing logic in terms of conjunctions of three basic operations, and, or, and not. In 1937, a young graduate student, Claude Shannon, at MIT, realised you could implement Boolean logic electrically, and the rest is history. The question is, what is left in us that is quintessentially human? So Brian Christian, in this wonderful book, looks at the strengths and weaknesses of a range of bots that have scored well against the humans, Okay, So sometimes these win. Sometimes people think these are people and these are robots. (laughs) 
Um, on creative writing courses, the golden rule is show, don't tell, yeah? Yes. Telling is dull and wooden. A list of facts about a person does not capture their essence. And on some speed dating events, to help the interaction along and maximise the getting-to-know-you process, people are not allowed to say where they came from or what they do for a living. So this Turing test is a little bit like speed dating. On one famous occasion in 1991, several judges decided that an English literature professor was a bot because she could answer the most obscure factual questions about Shakespeare. And the bot she was competing against, by contrast, was quirky and whimsical. (laughs) It made unpredictable replies and random comments that seemed amusing. (laughs) So we can learn from this that a person's idiosyncrasies are what makes them feel authentic to us. We can differentiate communication from our friends, from spam on our computers, because of their verbal style. And interestingly, it has so far proved impossible for a computer to satisfactorily translate a novel. In 2005, a programme called Cleverbot used the technique of challenging the judges, claiming that they were the computers. (laughs) (laughs) Then there was another programme. This wasn't in the competition. A new programme came out, and the first user of this programme stayed online for nearly two hours talking to this apparent person and the nature of their conversation was abuse there is something so predictable and ritualistic about arguments their lack of site specificity makes them easy to replicate it's very sad that two hours of hurling obscenities at an unknown victim can make us feel like human like a human (laughs) but it did These bots have a huge database of real human responses to questions that they draw on. If the context is favourable, they can be very convincing. But, and it is a big but, they can be stymied by asking them specific questions about themselves. One got very confused over what gender it was when it was being (laughs) propositioned by a male human. And of course, this is because they don't have a self. (laughs) They are a loose collection of thousands of snippets of talk, a sort of conversational puree, with no organising principle, what we might call the self. Just a bank of frequently co-occurring utterances. Now, while some of us are more fragmented than others, some degree of coherence of identity is the norm. We get very upset when people are inconsistent or in denial or when they do things out of character. And in extreme cases, we diagnose mental health difficulties. We are the products of our life history our culture. Computers have no experience. Words like memory (coughs) or learning, when used of a computer, are metaphorical. We should beware of mistakenly inferring agency or intention from behaviour. Right, I was going to leave this bit out, but I think I can fit it in now. This This is about chess. This is about... You know, Deep Blue. Um, Before Deep Blue, the the chess-playing programme beat world champion Garry Kasparov in 1997. Playing chess was seen as the highest form of human activity, a creative process on a par with music or poetry, an art that, quote, draws intrinsically on central facets of the human condition 
demanding elusive abilities that lie close to the core of human nature itself. Now that quote is from Douglas Hofstadter, who was a Pulitzer Prize winner in 1980. Now, after this win, when the computer won the chess game, there seemed to be two main responses. One was to acknowledge that intelligent machines had arrived and we'd lost our supremacy over all creation. That wasn't terribly popular. And two, to reframe our ideas of chess and play down its status. So Hofstadter said, I used to think chess required thought. Now I realise it doesn't. (laughs) Music and literature require a soul, but chess doesn't have deep emotional qualities to it well I think there's a third response which I would share with Gary Kasparov and that is that Deep Blue did not win the contest because they were not doing the same thing it doesn't have a memory of all possible games which would be infinitely huge but it has a repertoire of successful opening moves and end games. So it's only in the middle section when things get a bit unpredictable. Deep Blue was using algorithms, procedures, rules, derived from a huge database, whereas Gary Kasparov was using intuition or feel for the game. Just as in conversation or letter writing, we have stylized, culturally determined openers and closes. But the middle bit is more personal and idiosyncratic, more creative and novel, more risky. So would chess. Of course, we can experience conversations where it all feels predictable and never goes beyond the formalities or the conventions. And we feel nothing meaningful has happened And in general, it's these stylized conversations that the bots or bot designers want to be having in the Turing test. It's the weakness that they best exploit. But human beings do not only engage in small talk. It has its uses, but too much leaves us feeling disappointed. The chess-playing computer is not playing chess. The computer that produces text from speech or speech from text is not reading, writing and talking. They know, another metaphor, they know rules. The rules of chess, the rules of grammar, rules for converting strings of letters to sounds And they can do matching and probability, working from huge databases, but there's no way there is any understanding going on. For people who don't know anything about how computers work or how programs are written, it's easy to project intention onto a machine. It's part of our nature to read significance into what we perceive But what really worries me is the people who do understand these things, believing that machines will soon have independent thought and feelings. It's a form of denial of our humanity. Our authentic nature stems from the fact that we are bodies. We're back to our diagram. Physical beings who have evolved over millions of years. The human brain is not a recent add-on, although the neocortex is a relatively recent development. The brain is part of the body, whose main function is to keep us alive, and we throw off our ape ancestry at our peril. If we were completely rational in our decision-making, we'd probably die. Like the donkey standing equidistant between two bales of hay. Which one? Which one shall I have? And there's no reason for choosing one or the other, so you just stand (laughs) The emotions play a key role in judgment. 
We talk of a gut feeling, and that is not a metaphor. We don't always know what leads us to choose one thing, one person, one direction in life rather than another. Things going on in our bodies with hormones, enzymes, neurotransmitters, the immune system, all responding to sensory information. Tell us how we feel before we become consciously aware of it. Intuition, guessing, inspiration, risk-taking, these are all faculties that a computer lacks but are crucial to our survival. Some of us, and I put my hand up to this, have been seduced or deluded into placing the intellect in a privileged position above the senses and the emotions. It's a form of denial, a reluctance to engage with the messiness of everyday life. Brian Christian acknowledges that he wasted most of his adolescence in geeky AI activities, distrusting his senses and being terrified of his body. And the result was a malnourished body with bad posture, (laughs) a frustrated, proud and critical individual. Lower level processes fulfilling our animal nature are more important to our overall well-being than higher-level conscious processes. Our spirituality resides in what Brian Christian calls our mongrelism. He compares us to lichen, which is formed of two species, fungi and algae, living symbiotically, or Another image, we're like the robot and the monkey holding hands. An integrated system, aware enough to apprehend its own limits and push them to produce our finest emotions, curiosity, enlightenment, wonder, awe. Scepticism about claims made for artificial intelligence systems can throw into focus our authentic human nature. Let us use our integrated hybrid nature as rational animals to be the best humans, the best friends, the best parents, the best teachers, artists, lovers we can possibly be ever-widening the range of our capacity for empathy and compassion. May we use our gifts wisely. Let's have a sing. This is a completely random choice. I just like it. It's number 163. Um, if you don't know it, so Sheila will play it through once and then we'll sing it through about three times, I think. Notice there's a, the last line repeats the phrase with different words. Thank you.
Peace be with you.